in the previous weeks of grace, we have been walking our way through the Lord's Prayer. And uh, this morning, we're, we'll take a hiatus from that. We will have our final sermon in the Lord's Prayer next week. Um, but I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Throughout the fall, we had planned a couple of Sundays where we would refresh ourselves in what we call a Grace Fellowship core conviction. And we have a core conviction that's, you know, in keeping with what Caleb testified about, and that is the core conviction that it is the word that does the work. So I just want to refresh that vision for us this morning, that the word does the work. Um, I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. That'll be our sermon text. But I'll also pair this reading with a reading from the opposite testament. This morning will be from Psalm 19. So Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And then Paul's words to the church at Corinth, beginning in verse, or chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we pray that in this moment, you would do the thing that only you can do, the thing you've promised to do, and the thing you've been so faithful to do for us all these seven years. And that is that by the power of your spirit, you would make alive these words in your word. Would you make alive the words that I've prepared? And Lord, would you shine light on the places in our hearts where the light needs to be shown to the end that we might have great hope this morning in our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I did some math this week. That should make you nervous. So as of today, I'm 15,097 days old. If you take an average of three meals a day, and we all know there's been some days that have had more than three meals. And there's been some days that have had less than that. But on average, 
I stand before you today as a man who has eaten 45,291 meals. Now that number assumes I'll have lunch and dinner tonight, so nobody freak out, okay? This week, off the top of my head, of those 45,291, off the top of my head, I could remember five of them. Now, I sat there a little longer, so after 20 or 30 minutes, I sketched out 10 of them. But hear me this morning. This is the kind of transition point. Every single one of them nourished me. And that's the way I would want you to think about preaching. Grace has this conviction that it is the word that does the work. And I hope to unfold that for you from Paul's words to the church at Corinth. There's, there's lots of passages of scripture that unfolds this idea, but I think Paul's in 1 Corinthians is as, as good as any. And there's two main things I want you to hear this morning in the time we have, two main things. The first thing is I want this morning to be a fresh reminder of where the true source of life is to be found in our church. It's in what Paul calls Jesus Christ and him crucified. And another place Paul will refer to that idea as simply the word of the cross. That is where the life of Grace Fellowship is to be found. Make no mistake, it won't be bank accounts, good strategy, although we hope the Lord provides for us and we hope we're wise and thoughtful. But the true source of Grace Fellowship's life is in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then the second thing I want you to hear this morning is just a simple, once again, fresh declaration of that good word of the gospel. So I'm going to talk to you about Paul's words, and then at the very end, I'm going to tell you what Jesus has done for you as a way we prepare to celebrate at this table. So let's take a look together, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, this is Paul speaking, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Why? Verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What Paul is saying here is that his ministry and his message, his preaching, his teaching, his proclaiming, whether that was in a public sphere, whether that was in a private home, whether that was on a ship, whether that was in a wilderness place, whether that was on the road, whether, wherever it was, Paul and the words here are emphatic. He was resolved. He was committed. He had decided. The idea is razor-sharp focus. The idea is laser focus. He was committed totally to nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he says, I wanted to know nothing among you, what he means is he did not want another foundation or another source except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Another way to say this is Paul says, I don't want to be known for anything except 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. This does not mean that Paul doesn't talk about marriage or, or politics or philosophies or obedience or, or morals. He, he'll do all of that. But in his mind, he does all of that in view of this word of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, the Apostle Paul was not committed to preaching and teaching a thousand different things, but he was committed completely to preaching one thing, 1,000 different ways. Which, of course, makes us ask the question. Okay, Paul, if you're resolved to preach Jesus Christ, him crucified, then what other options did you have? And the rest of the passage talks about the other kind of options that he had. If he wasn't going to be razor sharp committed to that, what were some other things? And I'm going to explain them to you. And as I explain them, you're going to see that it's like a first century thing. That people back in the first century, way back then, in the first century, might have possibly... Um, been tempted to do to stray back in the first century, way back then, way back then somewhere. In other words, as I explain them, you'll see how they're exactly the same as today. Look with me again at verse 1 again. When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 4, if you look on down, my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom. What is, what is Paul talking about? Well, in Paul's day, which is the same as our day, Paul would have been tempted, at least as an option, besides Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul would have been tempted to be an impressive, spectacular, sensational speaker. See, in, in Paul's day, there was this whole kind of thing where these famous celebrity-type figures would, would show up in cities and in towns and in squares, and, and they would be these celebrity public speakers. It, it's a little hard for us to get our minds around because our celebrity people, we are almost tempted to worship as gods or maybe performing artists like singers or or actors and actresses, or sports figures. In the world of Corinth in particular, but the Greco-Roman world in general, their celebrity speakers, their, their celebrity figures, their pop star figures, were these celebrity public speakers. These people would entertain folks at banquets. Think of it almost like a stand-up comedian, but they weren't necessarily trying to be funny. Although sometimes they would be. Other times, they'd be almost like improv artists. They would, they would come in with their speech that they liked to give about whatever they wanted to give it about, and they could wow a crowd with their speech, and then they'd just call out from the crowd, give me another subject to speak on. And someone in the crowd would say, speak on uh, the, the, the building on 3rd Street, and they would, on the fly, have a, have a big, dramatic speech about that thing. This is where it gets kind of crazy, but they would oil their bodies and shave their heads in order to look like a god. 
They were the original preachers in sneakers. If you don't know what that is, then congratulations to you. The bottom line is they did not believe what they were saying, and they did not care. They did not care about what they were saying. They did not care about their hearers. And they just spoke and entertained in order to tell people what they wanted to hear. There's a temptation in preaching to simply say what people want to hear. And I've noticed that this actually cuts really in two ways. One of them may be the expected way. One of them the less expected way. And let me just explain to you briefly. I mean, I mean, first of all, just like in Corinth, it's the same as today. People have a, a, a vision of what they believe a good life is going to be. And they are trying to do them uh, as a self-centered person in order to kind of arrive at this vision of the good life. We breathe in this air that we are these independent individuals who are pursuing this vision of the good life. And everything in our life, we kind of tack on to that in order to arrive at this good life. And, and often... Back in Corinth, just like today, we just grab a little Jesus stuff and just tack it on. We have this vision of, of what it means to live a good life. It comes to us from all kinds of confusing sources. But we'll just also just, just grab Jesus stuff and just kind of add it to the mix. And Paul would have been tempted to not confront people about that. I've actually noticed something strange, though. This is the second thing. Especially in kind of Christian cultures, part, it's confusing, what people want to hear is they want to feel very beat up about all of that. I've had people say to me things over the course of a ministry career that, yeah, when I go to church, I want to just get punched in the face. In other words, it's tempting to try to feed people's sense of guilt and shame in preaching. Because feeling guilty and feeling ashamed can also strangely make you feel alive. What's interesting is the antidote to both, confronting people in their rebellion and addressing people in their guilt and shame. The antidote to, of both, according to Apostle Paul, is Christ and him crucified. Because the message of the cross confronts our sense of sinfulness but it also offers mercy to us in our places of guilt and shame. So Paul would have maybe been tempted to be an impressive public speaker in the things that he said to tell people what they wanted to hear. But there's a second piece. He would have also been tempted to do all of that for self-promotion and personal gain. Look with me in verse and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. See, these speakers that would preach these 
elaborate rhetorical speeches that told people what they wanted to hear became rich doing that. They became rich toying with people's emotions in their speeches. They used these platforms they had for their own personal gain, but you get the sense that the Apostle Paul was nervous about that. That he was overwhelmed with what he was actually proclaiming. That maybe in proclaiming what he was trying to say, that perhaps he was burdened for his hearers and burdened for what was going on in their hearts and in their souls. You get the sense that he was affected by the thing that he was preaching. So rather than being like those speakers that did not care or did not believe it, Paul cared deeply and he believed it. And therefore, when he would preach, it was kind of trembly and unimpressive, actually. There's a place in the book of 2 Corinthians where they basically say, I mean, Paul writes good letters, but when he shows up in person, he's just kind of weak. And Paul's saying that's the whole point. The power of God travels through weakness. There's a preacher of another generation who said one time, I can forgive a preacher of anything so long as the preacher gives me some sense of God. See, Paul was committed. He was committed to preaching Christ and him crucified, and he really believed it, and he was really burdened. In other words, his posture actually became a way that the message of the cross was clarified. This is what he goes on to say in verse 4. In my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, Paul is saying something sobering here. He's saying that the preacher, the preacher can actually work against the power of the Spirit, can resist the power of the Spirit by, by lofty things and self-promotion. But instead, what Paul is saying is he wanted his ministry to be marked by simple, clear, direct, straightforward announcement about Jesus and what Jesus had done. See, Paul was making the case that it was, in fact, the word that does the work. In the sea of confusion, Paul wanted to bring clarity. In the sea of things that were kind of indirect and confusing, he wanted to be direct and straightforward. A couple words of application this morning. The first one has to do with, with all of us. Whatever it is that Paul is talking about here, being resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that is what we are trying to do at Grace. At Grace Fellowship, we do not believe that it will be one worship service or one sermon that radically changes your life, though it could be. But what we are banking on is it will be 
hundreds of worship services over time where the same good news of Jesus, Jesus Christ and him crucified, is preached and proclaimed again and again and again and again and again and again. And we believe that over time, that word of the gospel, that word of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified, will do the work to make us who our Lord would have us be. It's also not just in the sermon. It's in the songs that are sung. It's in the pattern of reading scripture, hearing scripture read. It's in the pattern of confessing our sins and hearing of assurance. It's in the pattern of hearing his word preached and applied and celebrating it at, at his table and singing to celebrate what he's done and being sent out with a good word of blessing, we, we believe that whole exchange does the work of making us who our Lord would have us be. Again and again and again and again. We're not trying to teach and preach to you a thousand different things. We're trying to preach and teach one thing to you a thousand different ways. And that one thing is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Second word of application, let me just look you in the face and say to you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let me explain the hope of the gospel to you for your refreshment and hope this morning. God's good world has been marred and ruined by sin. The power of darkness and evil and death have broken God's good world and things are not what they're supposed to be. You see that out there and you feel it in your own bones, don't you? And at the right time, according to the promises of God throughout the pages of the scriptures, Christ came. Christ came, and he came in human skin. He took on flesh and lived among us so that he could understand the full weight of that situation entirely. And this Jesus lives a life of obedience before God the Father, perfectly providing all righteousness in every way, we are saved not just by his death on the cross, but also by his life of righteousness. And Jesus goes to the cross, and there's at least two things that happen in the cross. I want you to hear them freshly this morning. First of all, on the cross, Jesus makes atonement for our sins. In his very body and in his very blood, he purchases forgiveness pardon and peace, reconciliation for you and for me. He goes into the grave, but he's raised from the dead to defeat evil and sin and death and darkness forever. And in that happening on the cross, he purchases forgiveness. But just that second thing I just said, he defeats and destroys the power of evil and death and darkness. 
When he's raised from the dead, he ascends to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. The Lord Jesus, the one who was crucified at this very moment, sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where he's doing two things. First of all, he's upholding the universe by the word of his power. And secondly, he is praying for you and for me. And in Christ's life and in death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, he is making all things new all things new, and that includes you. He's poured out his spirit in order to make you alive, more alive than you could imagine ever being. He promises one day to return to finally and fully make all things new and right. On that day, when he returns again, as Caleb has testified, death will be swallowed up forever. We will feast a great feast that celebrates all that he's done. His name will be on our foreheads, meaning this whole work of making us new will be completed. And then the scriptures teach that we'll actually see his face. Grace Fellowship. What else is there? Let's pray. Lord, we want to be a people who only know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, we ask that you would go before us as we seek to be that kind of church. And Lord, I pray that the fresh hope and message of the good news of the gospel would be alive in us, Lord, this morning. You use it to restore and refresh us and make us new, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.